Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African American voice in classical music, and I want to welcome you. Oh, our opera diva series last left off with dramatic soprano, the Grammy Award-winning Christine Brewer, who talked to us about her recording Echoes of Nightingales, and we had the opportunity to follow Ms. Brewer to her recital at the Kennedy Center. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Today, the Opera Diva series picks up yet again with another wonderful soprano. Today, we are honored to have as one of our guests, one of Opera's brightest stars with us. As winner of the 2005 BBC Singer of the World competition in Cardiff, Nicole Cabell is becoming one of the most sought-after sopranos of our day. Ms. Cabell sings leading roles at the Metropolitan Opera, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, among many others. Please welcome soprano Nicole Cabell. Good afternoon, Nicole. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to talk to you. Oh, finally. I'm so honored to have you on today. Thank you so much. Uh, How is the weather there in Chicago, the Windy City? (laughs) We actually have a nice, sunny day. I intend to make my way to Navy Pier today. It's just such a rarity to get those at this point in the early spring, so I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty nice here, too, in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and I hope I can get outside today as well. But what I want to do is just give the listeners an idea of, of Nicole Cabell. I just want you to take a moment and take us back to the moment that you heard your name announced <laughs> as the winner of the B.B. Singer Singer of the World competition. Could you describe that moment for us? Sure. I, you know, it's one of those things that if somebody asked me to really get an impression of it, I say, well, there's this uh, YouTube clip <laughs> that is up there that shows my reaction as being completely shocked and surprised. And to this day, I, I still am incredibly shocked. I think when you're in a situation like that, um, looking at a really significant career-changing opportunity, you have to prepare yourself for the worst possible situation. And, of course, I imagine everybody else's name is being called before mine. And so when they called mine, it actually was very much a shock. Um, And I really did think at that moment, okay, everything changed. My whole life is is, is changed and nothing's ever going to be the same. And truly that was the case. What kind of preparation did it take you to participate in this particular competition? What kind of rigor did it take for this competition? Well, there's a psychological demand that I think should never be taken for granted. You know, when you're performing in front of a live audience, that's hard enough. But, of course, this is um, a wonderful media opportunity, this competition in Wales. And, you know, you're, you're aware of its reputation and... We've all, as singers, listened to the competition being broadcast. But, of course, when you get there, it's um, they tell you right away uh, you're, you'll be singing for millions of people no matter what because even in the pre- preliminary rounds, millions of people hear you online. And um, if you get to the finals, it's prime time, BBC Two. It's just it's very, very um, public. And you have to just be prepared for that, which is not an easy task. So that was the, the big thing was just sort of mental preparation and to try to get into that mindset where I was able to perform and entertain and not care as much about um, the fact that it was just so um, you're so vulnerable in front of that many people. Of course, it's also a challenge to try to squeeze 
squeeze the amount of music and the time allotted to you while still maintaining a, a variety of language and musical styles and something interesting um, to offer the audience. Mm, that's that's a, a valid point. So how many people were in the final round of the competition? Well, it was only five. I believe that has always been the case anywhere from uh, – this year they might have a, a less, maybe 20 or something along those lines of, of semifinalists. But the finalists, you only have five, and we sing for 15 minutes. And it's – yeah, I mean – this still doesn't seem to be enough time, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you just, it, it's just such a whirlwind, but um, yeah, they're doing it and the competition is every two years. And so this year, of course, it's uh, coming around again, 2011. Uh, That's awesome. You know, I want to take a moment and interject a little bit of humor in here because I must admit to you uh, when, as I was preparing for this, this interview and this time with you, of course you've seen that I have a graphic artist who, who does all the analysis for me when I do these these major interviews. And so when I sent him your picture, <laughs> he was like, who is this? And he started asking all these questions. Is she the opera singer? Is she very, oh, she's beautiful. So I want to let you know that you are definitely uh, a beautiful artist, and you just Aww. had my graphic artist just slip. Well, that's really sweet, you know. I, that that never gets old. A lady always likes to be told, given a nice compliment. So that, that's really sweet. And the poster is beautiful, too. Everybody says this is such, such great um, artwork on the poster. So, oh, no. Well, thank you so much. He, he does a great job. Now, just in doing my research, um, again, in preparation for our interview, I did have a chance to look at that clip. Uh, of the competition, and one of the things that really struck me was the fact that your award was presented to you by the late Dame Joan Sutherland. How did that okay. make you feel? Well, that was one of the major highlights of the competition. I don't think I could ever describe, but, you know, until you meet somebody, they they have a very specific energy, and she was so incredibly legendary, and one of those you know, I, I like to say it in the best possible sense, one of those freaks of nature when it came to the voice. You just, you don't get voices like that. You just do not. And there's something so special about that person. And you really get that energy when you see them. And, of course, she was so sweet and so so nice to me after the competition. She gave me some wonderful advice. And I was able to talk to the other legendary judges as well. And that was one of the one of the highlights that will always stick with me. Mm, I'm sure that was a memorable, memorable experience. So, Nicole, how were you first introduced to opera or music in general? Well, I, I think I could speak for a lot of Americans when I say that classical music wasn't part of my background. Um, my parents were very um, appreciative of music in general, and so we always had music in the house, but classical music was not um, on the agenda just by the fact that, you know, it, never, it wasn't part of my parents' childhood either. Um, we had a lot of Broadway music, uh, sort of musical theater music in the house, and that's what I started singing, jazz, musical theater, some pop music from the radio. And when I started singing, it was pretty clear that the music that I really wanted to sing, my voice didn't want to sing that music. Now, granted, I, I didn't know anything about classical music at the time, so I didn't know how 
perfect it would be for me. But when I started studying, my teachers just said right away, okay, this is <laughs> this sound, you're singing in a certain register with a certain type of vibrato, a certain sound to your voice, it just doesn't fit with this other particular style of music at the time being pop and Broadway music. So it was pretty fast that I started studying classical music. I think I was 16, just about 16 when I began studying classically. And I was learning how to sing at the same time I was learning about opera. I'm still learning about opera. <laughs> I think we all are, you know, in this profession. But um, it was and continues to be a very exciting journey and an art form that I have the most incredible respect for. Mm. Now, tell me a little bit more about your family. I was reading up on you. I was doing all my research. And I, one of the things that I learned that I thought was interesting, I read that your grandfather was the first African-American um, chief in the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Could you maybe talk mm-hmm. about your family's role in particular on your Korean opera, perhaps after you started singing? Well, I really consider myself lucky in that my family has always been really encouraging and fascinated by this, what I do, I think particularly because nobody else did this. Nobody else had a career in music. And my grandfather is somebody that I will always have incredible respect for. And he's he continues to be one of my greatest fans. <laughs> mm. um, but, yeah, it's 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 really special, I think, to everybody simply because I'm the only one that has this talent and everybody sort of wonders where it came from. I think maybe some of my family members, hmm, maybe I can sing too, you know. <laughs> it has to start somewhere. But, um, yeah, it's it's something that I think, just like I am extremely proud of my grandfather and my other um, very accomplished family members, they share this respect for what I do as well and, and are incredibly encouraging. Now, do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older brother, and that's it. Our family's relatively small, and my my older brother, bless his heart, he doesn't sing at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, don't feel bad. My my older brother doesn't sing either, so we have that definitely in common. Um, nice. <laughs> I want to talk. Of, <laughs> I want to talk about your debut recording, uh, soprano. It it was quite a hit. And I want to know uh, what are your next plans as far as recording, are, and is there perhaps a recording in the works, another solo recording? Well, I actually have a labor of love that I'm working on currently, which is which I was supposed to record in January, but there's a fantastic composer, Ricky Ian Gordon, and I'm sure everybody, uh, if they don't know who he is, they would love his music, and we're collaborating on a project hopefully to be completed this fall um because of illness i wasn't able to do it this january but that's sort of what's next on the on the uh schedule and in talks about other things as well but that's that's the project i'm I'm most enthusiastic about and telling people um to get ready to to hear this wonderful recording so um i don't know if you're familiar with his work he uh recently composed an opera the grapes of wrath um and this is being performed in a um a lot of places right now, and I encourage everybody to run out and listen to his music. It's just incredible. Yes, I'm actually a little bit familiar with Ricky Ian Gordon. Um, he's a wonderful composer, and we have a, a, a up-and-coming a smaller venue here in the D.C. area called Artisphere, and it's housing right now this 
this huge um, opera festival put on by Urban Aria. It's a new contemporary opera company, and they're actually presenting several of his works on that um, on that festival. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Elizabeth Futrell singing, I think, the opera called Orpheus that he wrote. Wow! So me, but yes, yeah, did. but it's a series. That <laughs> yeah, it's a right, series I'm that just—it's it, almost over. If I'm not mistaken, I think this week is the last week, but it's been re- re- going on for the last couple of days, and it's been several of his operas, and it, and it's been getting rave reviews. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to go, but I've been reading all the post coverage and all the the area papers. So he's definitely a composer who is making his mark. Absolutely, and I think you'll just continue to hear more and more and more of his works, but he's one of the few very successful composers right now. There are not, you know, it's sort of a tricky profession, especially with the state of the music business and, you know, um, um, uh, commissioning works. It's just you're you're lucky if you're as successful as as him, and so I'm I'm extremely um, flattered and skilled to be, um, flattered to be working with him. Yeah, it's wonderful that you're taking a, a risk yourself to you program this new, fresh repertoire. A lot of people, a lot of times, people get comfortable of, of just hearing the traditional, you know, Bach, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, Strauss. Right. Those things are wonderful, but I mean, that's certainly a leap to program uh, new music, and I definitely commend you on that. Well, it's absolutely a passion of mine, American music, um, and. His particular style I love because it is a little bit reminiscent of the type of music I sang a lot when I was beginning, which was that sort of Broadway uh, musical theater type. His his music has often been described as crossover, but he, he seems to be focusing more on a classical approach these days. Um, if all goes well, our theme will be um, based on Langston Hughes' poetry, of which he set a lot of this poetry to music. So that's also um, going to really add a lot of depth to the recording. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because last week here, uh, the Washington Chorus, which is one of the symphonic choruses here housed at the Kennedy Center, conducted by Julian Wachner, they just mm-hmm. performed a work called Gospel Cha-Cha. It's the poem of Langston Hughes set to music by a contemporary composer named Elena Rohr. Wow. So it's just funny that you mentioned that thing about Langston Hughes and, and Ricky mm-hmm. Ian Gordon because uh, a lot of Langston Hughes, it seems, a lot of his poetry, it seems to be set in these new contemporary uh, settings of music. But that that concert last week was, was wonderful, and it, it just really made me want to seek out new composers. So I hope I can hear that work that you're speaking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll try to make it as public, uh, <laughs> all the advertisement I can before the uh, project even gets recorded, because I think when it comes out, it's we both work very well together, so I, I hope that you can get your hands on a, a copy of that recording when it comes out. Well, maybe I can hint to you now to give the African American voice of classical music the exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hold you to it. Now, speaking of um, speaking of American music, we had just uh, kind of segued into that. Tell me about your participation in Soprano Jesse Norman's Honor Festival that happened back at Carnegie Hall in 2009. How was that experience? Oh, that was amazing. Um, it was, I believe, six of us. And what can I say? I mean, that the opportunity to perform with colleagues on that level. Uh, we all had a similar understanding of what we were doing, what our mission was, and making music was just 
such a pleasurable experience. Sometimes it isn't always pleasurable. It's a little bit more work than it is pleasure, but that was an incredibly fulfilling uh, experience to do that. Singing a duet with Harold Blackwell, well, that was worth it all right there. <laughs> she's, oh, she's so wonderful. wonderful. Yes, and to, ha- and to have Jesse Norman sort of emceeing the whole thing and being a, a part of it, I just I felt so incredibly honored. Um, the namesake, of course, of <laughs> to be in the presence of somebody like that was... Uh, it was incredible, and um, one of one of the highlights of my career so far, for sure. Mm, I thought it was a wonderful. I was so I was so sad that I couldn't make it, to, and it was so many things of the festival going on. But I just loved the whole idea that they had this uh, this wall of honor where they lifted mm-hmm. all of the African American singers who had uh, performed on the stage of Carnegie Hall. Even you know, not just opera, but it was it, it was cross genre. Jazz musicians, um, you know, mm-hmm. R and B, different different uh, variety of African Americans, and it was so wonderful for me to see Ben Holt, who is a native of Washington D.C. and for whom uh, one of our music organizations' name was on that roster as well. So, yeah, that was a wonderful mm-hmm. um, experience. Do you remember what you sang on the program? Yes, I believe. Um, well, we sang spirituals. I don't remember if that was the entire second half of the program but um i sang gosh i'm trying to remember exactly i believe i sang number from poor game bass as well as a list song um but i don't remember if the whole second half was spirituals or not regardless i I liked that they had a style um variance on the program to show okay well this is really important to african-american singers to be able to add music that is classically sung but is very specific to the African-American um, people. And so f- for us it was fantastic that we were able to sing spirituals at Carnegie Hall as well as classical music, mm. which we're also, you know, uh, trained in. Mm, that's a, it's definitely an honor. And speaking of honor, who would you say some of the legendary sopranos um, that you perhaps look up that you that serve as a model for your career? Right. Um, that's always a, a question that I give too long of an answer to because I have too many people that I look <laughs> up to. But uh, I suppose if I had a small handful, people that I'd like to listen to and, of course, people who I, who I admire. I, I can't necessarily sing a lot of the music of the people I admire. For instance, um, loving Joan Sutherland, I still can't sing half the music that she sung. But people like Marella Franey, Renee Fleming... Renata Scotto, uh, Leontine Price. Um, I'm a big Barbara Hendricks fan. Yeah, yeah. These these singers are incredible, and singers that I can also relate to in terms of the vocal fach that I consider myself part of. Not necessarily Leontine. She's one, she's again somebody that I I can't sing half of the music she sings, but it does. You know, I listen to her and I say, how can I? how can I gleam just a tiny percentage of this magic she puts into her uh, interpretation into what I, um, into what I do. Barbara Hendricks is somebody I sing a lot of the same music she does. And so I kind of grew up listening to her and as, as well as Marie Lafrani. Um, and of course my current obsession, me current being since 1998 <laughs> has been Renee Fleming. I just, I love her, her voice is 
magical. It makes me cry every time I listen to it. And her interpretation of uh, Mozart's and Strauss music is fabulous. I just she's she's somebody I think that has an aura of magic about her too, and you see her in person as well. Well, you know, you mentioned Barbara Hendricks. Of course, I love every, all of those names that you mentioned, but Barbara Hendricks, of course, is somebody <laughs> that I grew up listening to a lot of the recordings, but then she, she made most of her career over in Europe, and now I see that she has her own um, recording label called Arte Verum, and now I see a resurgence of yeah. her just doing her own thing, um, you know, all these fresh mm-hmm. recordings, and it's just wonderful to see that she's, she's still singing, so I'm just happy that you mentioned Barbara Hendricks. And then Renee Fleming, I heard her for the first time live just this year. Isn't that a shame? Oh, my gosh. That's not a shame. It's hard to get to hear everybody. So, and I'm sure you were as blown over as I was. <laughs> oh, yes. And she was so gracious. I had the opportunity to, to meet her backstage. She already knew who I was. I was I was kind of happy about that. And we took a picture. So she was, yeah. So we took a picture together. And she, she was really wonderful. Well, you have some some wonderful people that you look up to. So if there are any aspiring sopranos out there, um, Nicole has given you some key people to listen to, definitely. (laughs) Yes, you can't go wrong. (laughs) Now, when you're not listening to opera, singing opera, what do you listen to? Well, I'm one of those singers that I I try not to, to listen to opera ad nauseum simply because, I feel like if you listen to a lot of other types of of music, it really can inspire your life and give you a sort of variety of colors. And so I listen to just about everything. I listen to um, a lot of classic rock, 80s sort of pop music, um, alternative music, R&B, um, even a lot of sort of, acoustic guitar music as well not a lot of classical music in my free time i do it so it occupies most of my life so i feel like it's necessary to bring that balance into my life uh, to listen to some other types of music mm, in fact i just I went to a tv next concert that. the other night yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry which concert did you go to we went. <laughs> we went to the Rod Stewart, Stevie Nicks, uh, Heart and Soul tour concert here in Chicago. Oh, <laughs> on Saturday night. <laughs> I said this is different. Oh my different goodness! Has been so it long since like I've been to a, a concert like that. <laughs> it felt like it was a blast. Now speaking <laughs> of Chicago, speaking of Chicago, I want. I, what I noticed, it seems like that you have a love affair with Chicago, even though you're from California. It seems like you've had a lot of wonderful experiences in Chicago. It's almost like Chicago has a love affair with you. How how has that come about? That Chicago is like your well, home base. Right. Um, right after I graduated from the Eastman School of Music, I was slated to attend the Juilliard School and an audition for the Lyric Opera. At the time, it was called the Lyric Opera Center for American Artists. Now. Um, entitled the Ryan Opera Center. So it's the Young uh, Young Artist Apprentice Program with the um, Chicago Lyric Opera. An audition for that came up, and I actually was lucky enough to find myself in the finals and getting in, into the program that year. And so I pulled out of Juilliard because, you know, I was starting the program here relatively su- relatively soon, and I think that was that was in f- March, uh, yeah, March or April of 2002. And 
the city, I just, I sort of fell in love with the city. It has everything that I ever wanted in a city with the exception of the cold weather. <laughs> I think the Southern <laughs> California thing, that, that was the comfort of the weather was beat out of me uh, in Rochester, New York. <laughs> so it was kind of like similar to Rochester and I was able to tolerate it. And the city itself is so wonderful. The people are great. It's the culture is fabulous. The, the food, the shopping, the amount of entertainment, it just was a perfect city for me. And I was sort of looking at moving back to California, but, well, you know, I have a lot of family there, but Chicago has so much to offer and its location is wonderful um, for a lot of international travel. It's a lot more convenient than living in California, but I still do, I I have a, I'm torn between two lovers, <laughs> California and uh, Chicago. And I say the whole state of California, I just, I love. So, you know, you never know where I'll be in the next, you know, couple of years. But for right now, Chicago is definitely um, where I consider home. Well, I'm sure for Chicago, they are happy to have you. You're such a credit uh, <laughs> to Chicago. So, roo-roo Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Um <laughs> so while you while you're at the uh, Eastman School of Music, I mean that's one of the most prestigious music schools in the country. Um, what kept you motivated to be the best musician that you could be? Especially, this is more as a question that I gear towards maybe the younger students out here who are studying, trying to get to the level of excellence where you are. What motivated you? Well, I think besides the art of classical music and singing and and stagecraft just being on stage and expressing uh being a vessel for expression i should say it's what motivated me i think was doing something in my life that i considered significant so of course everybody has their um interest or their maybe their obsession and whatever that is be it graphic design or architecture or art if they really can pursue that thing that they love and that they think that they do um exceptionally well i think that is going to be their motivation as opposed to monetary means or just having fame or some some sort of shallow motivation for me it was just being able to give of myself to the world through music and that's just the way that I've been I consider myself blessed to be able to be to, to be able to do this and I guess the advice too I don't know if this is part of the question but for those singers or musicians I guess in general that might be thinking about going to school and they need some motivation to get through it's just what I would tell them would be to just throw themselves into it 100% and never sort of hold back. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure and a lot of things, things that will take you out of your comfort zone in schools. And for me, it was just trying to have as you know, feeling the fear and doing it anyways, as, as they say, throwing myself into it 110% and not holding back anything. So yeah. That's the best uh, advice I could give. Mm, and it's definitely sound advice. So for all those aspiring musicians, whether you're a soprano, or opera singer, or an instrumentalist for that matter, that was definitely sound advice. You know, this is not 
an easy field, um, much to a lot of people's surprise. Music is not an easy field. It takes a lot of hard work and dedication, and, and that was just a pl- uh, validation of that. So I wanted to ask you also that when you were at the Eastman School of Music, I have I have two friends in this area that went there. Did you by any chance know Pamela Simonson? Oh, yeah. She was a sweetheart. <laughs> I knew her. Yeah, we were in different classes, so we weren't able to hang out that much. But when we did, I thought she was just a, a real sweetheart. I, and I, we might actually be Facebook friends. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> yeah, Pamela is one of my good friends. She and her brother both went to Eastman, so we all, you know, we all definitely uh, go to concerts with her mother, Terry uh, Allen, who is uh, the founder of the Coalition of African Americans in the Performing Arts with her children, mm-hmm. uh, Victor and. Mm-hmm. Um, Pamela, so that's such a small world. You never know who knows it who. <laughs> it is definitely a small world. Classical singing, my God, very small. <laughs> so, Nicole, just as we wind down this interview, again, I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking this time. It seems like it, we've been talking forever, but the time has gone by so fast because you've been so interesting to talk to. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> um yeah, as we really wind down the conversation, what's what's up next on your performance calendar? Well, uh, the next couple of um, engagements I have, I'm singing a St. Matthew Passion here, uh, Soli De Deo Gloria organization. So it's the Bach Project here in um, Chicago. And heading off to Atlanta to do some concerts with the symphony, uh, singing um, excerpts from La Boheme as Mimi, and then starting my summer in Germany, singing my first Dona Elvira at uh, Cologne and continuing on with that role in, at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. Um, I could go on, but I think that is probably <laughs> gives you a good idea of the varying projects I have. It's very different sort of what I have on my plate, but very exciting. All new projects coming up. Just going back to the, the performance of the Bach St. Matthew Passion, is there any special preparation that you had to maybe go through to, to maybe approach that music for the Baroque period in a different way than you would, say, Puccini? Oh, yeah, for, for absolutely, for sure. It's it's tempting to just say, oh, I'll just sing this with my with my voice, and I'm a romantic singer and, you know, scoop and have a lot of vibrato and all the sort of stylistic no-nos with that music. But for me, I'm trying to find that balance between singing it with my voice and making sure to incorporate the correct Baroque style, um, bringing a little straight tone into the music, kind of narrowing the sound a little bit, Um and there's, of course, a lot of other subtle qualities that you need to bring to Baroque music, which, you know, um, are a little bit more intimate than that. But it's a di- it's a different thing, of very different. And I think it's ironic that I'm following it with one of the more uh, broad and romantic pieces, the, the uh, Bohem excerpts in um, Atlanta. <laughs> so I think that's kind of <laughs> dangerous for singers. You know, you got to be careful. But... Um, I think I'm doing it as careful as I can, so <laughs> we'll see. I guess that was fresh on my mind because I just got back from New York earlier. Um, well, last week I was in New York City. I had the opportunity to review concerts by the Trinity uh, Choir on Wall Street, and they do this whole series of, of music uh, by Johann Sebastian Bach. They do one cantata every Monday at 1 o'clock. And so mm-hmm. to hear that choir, it was like a period uh period instruments, a period-type 
informed performance. Mm-hmm. And it was a whole, it was a different, uh, I guess, texture or color that I was, I was used to hearing. So that's what maybe you know prompt that that yeah. question because I'm, I'm always listening to a lot of different interpretations. Or even I direct the church choir, but it's much different because it's mm-hmm. definitely American church choral school. It's it's vibrato. It's just you know big. So yeah. that was kind of why yeah. that was kind of fresh in my thought. <laughs> right, it's very different, and I, believe me, everybody has an opinion on it too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, just, well, Nicole, I want to say thank you so much. It's been definitely an honor to have you on. Was there any maybe final thought that you want to give to any of the listeners out there as it uh, you know? pertains to classical music or viewpoint that you want to share? Oh, well, I'm just thankful to be on the show. I, I appreciate any opportunity um, to talk about this wonderful art. And, of course, I encourage anybody who is listening to the show to continue the support of the arts and anybody who might be listening as a fresh um, customer, if you will, to classical music to really give it a shot because it's. I didn't come from it. I didn't have that background myself, and I've learned to – to not only love it, but consider it an incredible um, growth opportunity in my life. So, yeah, I encourage anybody to come out and support the arts. Nicole, before you leave, I want to share with the listeners um, actually of you singing the the Prelude by Charpentier from your recording soprano. This is soprano Nicole Cabell.
That was absolutely wonderful, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Again, I just want to say thank you so much for being on with us today, and I just wish you so much success with your glowing career. Thank you so much for taking this time with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you again for having me on. Oh, you're certainly welcome. And for those who want to find out more about Nicole's career and her schedule, you may visit her on Nicole-Cabell.com, and it will give you a variety of, of information on her, including her schedule, her biography, and how to get plenty of her recordings. And that will be something that will definitely um, have an opportunity for you to enjoy her artistry even further. Again, this has been Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I invite you to tune in on May 3rd as I unveil the Trailblazers series. This series is dedicated to musicians who open the doors for all who come behind them and enjoy the success of successful music careers today in classical music and the performing arts. That series, the Trailblazer series, will begin with none other than legendary Metropolitan Opera tenor George Shirley on May 3rd at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Again, I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I do wish you all a magnificent 